Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist and the final installment of Irish Month. Today's episode is entitled Voices from Ireland. It takes its inspiration from the Voices from the Battlefield series, that huge oral history project which I created for Waterloo Remembered in June of last year. A number of Napoleonicist listeners have sent in extracts of some of their favourite memoir and diary readings, either written by Irish men and women or about them. What follows is a montage giving you just a flavour of the experiences of the Irish during this period. We begin with Marcus Beresford, who introduces two extracts from William Grattan of the 88th and Harry Ross Lewin of the 34th, which are characteristic of how the Irish experience has been remembered in history. Here are two sides of the Irish story in the wars against the French. The first is taken from William Grattan's Adventures with the Connaught Rangers. The second is from Harry Ross Lewin's memoirs. To begin with Grattan... This is the story of a Welshman, a Scot, and a lot of Irishmen. The Welshman was General Thomas Picton, the Scot, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Wallace, and the Irishman, for the most part, the rank and file of the Connaught Rangers. The Connaught Rangers, the 88th, were the most Irish of all the regiments in the British Army in the Peninsular War. They formed part of the 3rd Division. In early 1810, their new divisional commander, Thomas Picton, arrived at Trancoso in northeastern Portugal. His reputation as a tyrant preceded him. While governor of Trinidad at the beginning of the 19th century, Picton stood accused of the execution of slaves without due process and the authorising of the torture of Luisa Calderon, a young girl charged with stealing. Found guilty at trial of the torture of Louisa, Picton was not sentenced, 
and at a retrial the decision was reversed in part. Nevertheless, his arrival was attended with trepidation by the men of the 88th and other regiments. They were right to be apprehensive. On arrival, the entire division was ordered to assemble for inspection. We are fortunate to have the well-written and humorous story of Dubliner Lieutenant William Grattan, which gives us a number of accounts of the relationship of the regiment with their divisional commander. Here are a few extracts to give you a flavour. The first is the parade. The division went through several evolutions and performed them in a very superior manner indeed. The line marching and the echelon movements for which the 88th under Wallace was so celebrated seemed to surprise the general. He, however, said little. Once he turned to Wallace and said in a rather disagreeable tone, Very well, sir. The parade was about to be dismissed and the general about to return to quarters when two marauders of the 88th were brought up in charge of a detachment of Portuguese militia. They had stolen a goat on their march up to join the regiment. The complaint was at once made to Picton, who ordered the men to be tried by a drumhead court-martial on the spot. This was accordingly done, the men were found guilty and flogged on the moment in the presence of the general. This act was considered by all as not good taste in General Picton on his first appearance amongst his troops. And the word tyrant was more than muttered by many of the division. So soon as the two soldiers were removed after having received the number of lashes it was thought necessary to inflict, the general addressed the brigade in language not of that bearing which an officer of his rank should use. For turning to the 88th, he said, You are not known in the army by the name of Connaught Rangers, but the name of Connaught Footpads. He also made some remarks on their country and their religion. Lieutenant Colonel Wallace, who commanded the Connaught Rangers at the time, was upset. He requested the brigade commander, General McKinnon, to take the matter up with Picton. Grattan then relates what Picton stated at a dinner to which Wallace was invited by Picton, as told to Grattan by Wallace. And I quote again. I understand that Colonel Wallace has taken offence at some observations made by me relative to the corps he commands when addressing the division. I'm happy to find that I have been misinformed as to their conduct for some time past, and I feel it but justice to him and them to say that I am satisfied every attention has been paid to the conduct and appearance of the Corps. I certainly did hear on the way up to the army of irregularities that had been committed, but I am happy to say that I have had every occasion to be satisfied with the general conduct of the Corps since my joining the division. After the Battle of Basako, where the 88th threw back the French attack on their part of the ridge, Wellington was most complimentary of the 88th, saying, I never saw a more gallant charge. One has to be careful, as some stories may be apocryphal. But supposedly, when Picton came to the Connaught Rangers after they chased the French back down the slope, he was met by cries of, Are we the Connaught footpads now? The second extract is also from Grattan. 
who reports that on another occasion, Picton and his ADC came across a Connaught Ranger with a goat on his back. Grattan takes up the story which shows Picton apparently had a sense of humour, but which also demonstrates that the Rangers were not cowed by Picton and treated him with a certain irreverence. Pray, sir, said, or rather roared Picton, addressing the soldier, what have you got there? The soldier, a thieving pecan, sir. Picton, a what? Soldier, a goat, sir. In Ireland, we call a buck goat a pecan. I found the poor base straying, and he looks as if he is as hungry as myself. Picton, what are you going to do with him? Soldier, do with him, is it? To bring him with me, to be sure. Do you think I would leave him here to starve? Picton, ah, you villain, you're at your old tricks, are you? I know you, though you don't think it. Soldier, and I know you, sir, and the boys of Connaught know you too, and I would be sorry to do anything that would be displeasing to your honour, and sure, if you would only let me, I'd send your servant a leg of him to dress for your dinner. For by my soul, your honour looks cold and angry. Hungry, I mean. The soldier then held up the goat's head, shook it at Picton's ADC, and departed into the chestnut trees without further words, with Picton reportedly turning to his ADC and saying, Well, that fellow has some merit. What tact and what humour. He would make a good outpost soldier, for he knows not only how to forage, but to take up a position that is unassailable. And the ADC responded, Why, yes, sir. When he held up the goat's head, he seemed to beard us to our faces, and his promise of sending you a leg was a capital ruse. Picton, it was, and if the fellow is found out, he will, I suppose, endeavour to make me the scapegoat. Now, <clears throat> the day following the capture of Theodad Rodrigo in 1812, when the 88th forced the breach as the great breach in a fierce contest, Grattan reported a further exchange between the rangers and Picton. Rangers saying, We gave you a cheer last night, it's your turn now. To which Picton apparently smilingly responded, Here then, you drunken set of brave rascals, hurrah! We'll soon be at Badahoth. And they were soon at Badahoth, but that is another story, or Scalella, as we say in Ireland. In truth, I do not think the Connaught Rangers ever took to Picton, as rough, foul-mouthed devil as ever existed, in the words of Wellington. But together they achieved huge success, and Picton wished them in Flanders for 1815. But they had been sent to North America. Their motto is, Quis separabit, but it was Picton who is reputed to have given them the name of the Devil's Own. A far more sombre side to the Irish story is told by Captain Ross Lewen from County Clare on the west coast of Ireland. Ross Lewin served with the 32nd Regiment, having initially joined the Limerick Militia. Following the defeat of the 1798 rebellion in Ireland, Ross Lewin described the treatment and fate of the rebels. And I quote, The jails were soon filled 
and Duncanon Fort was converted into a slave market. Cargoes of our wretched, misguided peasants were shipped off from thence to Chatham, in every kind of craft that could be procured for the purpose. The nature of their accommodations was unthought of. As many men as the hold could contain were huddled together with straw to lie, without straw to lie on, or any sea stock other than potatoes, which could not be cooked in bad weather, and of which even a sufficient quantity was not always provided. And it is a melancholy fact that several of these unfortunate people have perished of absolute want on their passage. In this manner, many regiments on foreign stations kept up their establishments, and those recruits soon became soldiers, second to none, in their gallantry in the field. It is true that at this eventful period war raged both at home and abroad, and the hands of the government were full, but under any circumstances, the nefarious proceedings at Duncannon Fort should have been instantly checked. Ross Lewin goes on to allude to the drafts of prisoners being sent to the 88th, at this time in Jersey, guarding the Channel Islands against French attack. Captain Dauvergne, based there, suggested that the Irish should be sent to Siberia as serfs. Other Irish had the misfortune to be passed on to the King of Prussia for incorporation in the Prussian army. A number were drafted into the 30th and 89th regiments serving afterwards in Egypt. The 89th was an Irish regiment itself, and had in fact been one of those tasked with putting down the rebellion. Yet more Irishmen were incorporated into regiments dispatched to the West Indies following the defeat of the rebellion, itself frequently a death sentence from disease. A lack of transports inhibited their being sent to New South Wales, which had been the original intention of the government. Marcus Beresford there, reading from William Grattan and Harry Ross Lewin. Many Irishmen had reason to hate the English during this period, though perhaps one of the most famous to act on that sentiment was Wolf Tone. The following extract from Tone's memoir is read by Andrew Dorman. Went today to Clark at the Luxembourg. He tells me that he has been hunting in vain for a proper person to go to Ireland that he had a Frenchman tampered with who was educated from a child in England and spoke the language perfectly, that at first he had agreed to go, but afterwards, on learning the penalties of the English law against high treason, his heart failed him and he declined. This is bad. However, there is no remedy. Clark went on to tell me that if the measure were pursued, without saying whether or not it would, the executive were determined to employ me in the French service in a military capacity and that I might depend on finding everything of that kind settled to my satisfaction. I answered that as to my own personal feelings, I had nothing more to demand. He then wished I would give him a short plan for a system of chunerie in Ireland, particularly in Munster, for he would tell me frankly the government had a design before anything more serious was attempted to turn in a parcel of renegados, or as he called them, blackguards, into Ireland in order to distress and embarrass its government there and distract them in their motions. I answered I was sorry to hear it, that if a measure of this kind was adopted with a view to prepare the minds of the people, it was unnecessary, for they were already sufficiently prepared that would only produce local insurrections, which would soon be suppressed, because the army, including the militia, would, in that case, to a certainty, support the government, 
and every man of any property, even those who wish for an independence of their country, would do the same, from a dread of indiscriminate plunder, which would be too likely to ensue from such a measure as he described. That there was another thing very much to be apprehended in that case, which, if I were a minister of England, I should not hesitate one moment about, and in which the parliaments of both countries would instantly con concur, vis-a-vis -vis to pass an act repealing those clauses which enact that the militia shall only serve in their own country, and directly to shift the militia of Ireland into England and replace them by the English militia, which would serve to all both countries, and most materially embarrass us. That, if all this were so, and these insurrections suppressed, their inevitable effect, grounded upon all historical experience, would be to strengthen the existing government. That England would avail of herself of such an opportunity to reduce Ireland again to that state of subjugation, or even a worse one, she had suffered in 1782, and would bind her hand and foot so as to make all future exertion impossible, in which we would would be supported by the whole Irish aristocracy, who composed the legislature, and who would sacrifice everything to their own security. That of France had nothing in view but to distress England for a moment, undoubtedly what he mentioned, however ruinous to Ireland might have that effect. But if the Republic went on more enlarged views and sounder policy, she ought not for a moment to give consideration to this scheme. That if the main force was once landed, undoubtedly it would be right to set Ireland to blaze at the four corners and burn out the English government. But that I was satisfied it would be ruinous to make the measures he described precede the landing. Finally, I repeated that, as to myself, I was ready to be one of ten men if the French government were determined to send no more. I also begged him to remember that I gave this, with all due deference, as my fixed opinion on a point which I had considered, in consequence of an idea of the same kind having been started to me by Madgett, from the Minister Clark resum resumed, by saying that, as to my being sent, it was not the idea of the French government to risk my safety in that stage of business. That the objection I had urged were of considerable weight, and that he would give them serious reflection. He then desired to see me in four or five days, and after giving my address, which he demanded, I took my leave. Feed journal, March 22nd and 23rd on this subject, which I am sorry to see has got ground amongst them. This conversation explains what Maget, who has returned from his mission, told me this morning, namely that he has got 51 Irish prisoners who would fight blood to the knees against England, and that he thought it would be very serviceable if they were dispersed through the country. I referred him, for my opinion, to our former conversations on that head, that I thought, undoubtedly, if the business were once begun, the wider the flame was spread, the better, but that the grand blow of the landing near Belfast should precede all others, and that being once effected, as many more as he pleased. I see clearly that my opinion was not to be followed, and I fear it will be found to be so much the worse. I have, however, discharged my conscience. I cannot blame France for wishing to retaliate on England the abominations of the Vendée and the Chouin, but it is hard that it will be at the expense of poor Ireland. It will be she and not England that will suffer, and the English will be glad of it, for they hate us next to the French. If these ragamuffins are smuggled into the country, local insurrections will ensue, the militia will obey their officers, the bravest of our poor peasants will stand to be cut down, and of those who run away, numbers will be hanged and many more sent aboard the fleet to fight the battles of England. And the government will be so much the stronger, not to mention the mischief which will unprofitably done even to the aristocracy, 
I dislike all of this very much. If I could help myself, but I fear I shall not be able to prevent it. At all events, I have given my opinions honestly. Poor Pat. I fear he is just now in a bad neighbourhood. Maggette tells me that Mr. W. Brown left Guise with his passport eight months ago. So there is an end of that business. I hope in God he is safe, and by this, safe with the girls at Princeton. How happy we shall be if ever we have the good fortune to meet again. I suffer a great deal in this business, however. Tis but in vain for the soldier to complain. Andrew Dorman, reading from Wolf Tone's memoir there. As we heard earlier this month, the Irish Rebellion of 1798 cast a long shadow over English-Irish relations. And the civilian experience of that uprising should not be forgotten, as Katrina Kennedy now explains. Hello, my name is Katrina Kennedy. I'm a historian of 18th century Ireland based at the University of York. The account which I'm going to read from is a diary of the 1798 rebellion. It was written by Elizabeth Richards, a 20-year-old Protestant woman who lived in Wexford, the county in the province of Leinster, where the rebellion was most concentrated. Richards came from a politically liberal gentry family. Several of her cousins had joined the Radical United Irish Society in its early years, and her diary of the rebellion makes clear that she was on good terms with several of Wexford's United Irishmen. However, her narrative reveals how the United Irishmen's plans for an Irish revolution and the lines of the French Revolution came, in the heat and desperation of armed conflict, to be framed as a religious struggle between Protestant and Catholic. Following a surprise rebel victory at Oulart Hill in Wexford on the 27th of May, rumours soon began to circulate that the rebels were planning a massacre of Irish Protestants. And as the rebels suffered a series of reversals and discipline began to break down, there would be two appalling massacres of Protestant civilians at Wexford Bridge and at School of Bogue. Several of Richard's Protestant friends were convinced to undergo Catholic baptism in the belief that they would thereby be spared. Richard's diary provides a vivid record of the emotional experience of the rebellion and of her family's fear and uncertainty, unable to know if their Catholic servants would remain loyal to them, watching the rebel movements through a telescope from their house, dealing with rebel troops, demands for arms and provisions, and constantly hearing conflicting reports on the rebellion's progress. But as the rebellion is defeated, her diary also reveals some conflicting emotions, a degree of sympathy for the rebels and their cause, and a horror at the brutality of the government forces sent to defeat them. May 26th, 1798, Saturday. We this day quitted Clonard after spending a happy week there. We came through Wexford, where we learned there had been a general rising in the county of Kildare, but that the insurgents had been defeated. It was also reported that the neighbourhood of Gorey and of Oulart has been much disturbed. Our trunks of clothes that went off this morning for Dublin are, I think, in some danger. I much fear that the people of this country are more inclined to insurrection than is apprehended. Sullen melancholy was expressed this day in the countenances of every individual of the lower classes. It can have no cause but the banishment of their priest Dixon and of ten men found guilty of disloyalty. These rebels were sent off this day to Duncannon Fort, escorted by a troop of Reomanry. Wednesday, May 27th, Clonard. At church, to my unspeakable astonishment, 
I heard that Bagnall Harvey, Edward Fitzgerald and John Coakley of Ballyteig had been taken up on suspicion of disaffection to government and lodged in jail, that the rebels and great force had attacked Carlo, nearly destroyed Tulla Street, but at length had been repulsed. After divine service, we walked to Fairfield. The news we had heard was the subject of conversation. It was treated lightly until a servant of Mr Sutton's rode up in haste to the hall door and told us that his master and mistress had sent him out to let my mother know that the people at the other side of the water were up, that they judged the country to be very unsafe and begged we would go to town immediately. Horror struck, we ran home. My mother had the lower windows barred and in breathless anxiety we awaited the return of our servants, whom she had sent to town to take the oaths of allegiance. In the evening, flying reports reached us that a detachment of North Cork militia consisting of 200 men had been sent against the rebels and was cut to pieces with the exception of Colonel Foote who commanded it and five privates. This was thought to be impossible. Too soon we found it to be a dreadful certainty. From the back windows, we saw several houses in flames. Good God, what a scene. Wednesday, May 30th. At four o'clock, my mother called us during the night. The rebels had collected in great force at the Three Rocks. Through the telescope, we plainly saw them in large bodies, marching and countermarching and tossing their pikes as if in a jig. Numbers on horseback were also performing a sort of exercise. About six o'clock, we saw part of the garrison march towards the rebels. A volley of musketry was fired. We saw one officer fall from his horse. We afterwards learned it was Colonel Watson, and in the course of a few minutes, the King's troops began a precipitate retreat. Our distress, aggravated by uncertainty of the fate of the army and what our own might be so near to a conquering mob, at first approached despair. At length, a stupid horror pervaded my senses. I feared without being able to grieve at the extent of our misery. That was most dreadful. In the course of the morning, a man rode into the courtyard with a white handkerchief tied round his hat, a green bough in front of it and a drawn sword in his hand. Everyone crowded round him. The servants seemed joyful. He demanded, or rather commanded, that provisions should be sent to the camp. We are starving, ma'am, said he to Mrs Hatton. Send us provisions or... He struck his sword with violence on the head of a pump on which he had stopped his horse. Government may confiscate my property for assisting rebels. If you do not comply, we shall be murdered, was the reply by all. An old man was dispatched to the Three Rocks with a car loaded with bacon and potatoes, for which Mrs Hatton received thanks from the rebel chiefs. Reports had reached us that the yeomanry had abandoned their posts, got on board vessels with their families and that the town was nearly deserted. About 10 o'clock, Mrs Clifford came to Clonard from Wexford. She looked distracted. Lady, she said, I am sorry to be the messenger of bad news. The army has left Wexford. It is in the possession of the rebels. Every Protestant is to be murdered tonight. You cannot escape. All we have to do is prepare for death. I looked around me with horror. I felt there was no possibility of our concealment or flight. The infernal pikes seemed already to glitter at our breasts. I shrieked and for a moment was all but mad. 
Crowds of Enniscorthy victors now began to fill the house, some of them wearing the uniforms of the murdered yeomen, flushed with victory and glorying in the blood that they had shed. They told us that they or some of their friends had met the 13th Regiment on its way to Wexford and that not a man but the commander had escaped. Some of Mrs Hatton's servants repaired to their victorious confederates as soon as they knew to a certainty that the army had retreated. The mask was cast aside. Those men who the Sunday before had solemnly taken the oaths of allegiance did not scruple to join the rebels. Some people who had flown from Wexford to Clonard told us that a massacre of the Protestants was intended and would undoubtedly take place. A servant of Mrs Hatton's, of the Protestant religion, once heard some papers say that they would first murder the Orangemen and the Protestants too, although it should be five years afterwards. William Hatton, who was an original United Irishman, assured us that there would not be a massacre, but that if he were uneasy, he would endeavour to procure us a boat to take us to Wales. Thursday, June 21st. At two o'clock in the morning, one of our servants and one of our guards returned from Falk's Mill. The girl who opened the door for them brought us word that the King's troops had been defeated. Edward the guard had himself killed two soldiers. One of their firelocks he brought away. The remains of the army had retreated towards Ross. My mother left the room to inquire further particulars of the action. Despairing and almost broken-hearted, I threw myself on a chair in my bedroom. I knew not how long I remained there. After breakfast, we walked to Mr Toole's. There we heard that the rebels had been defeated at Falk's Mill this morning at Vinegar Hill and that they were flying in all directions. How happy we were now. I was as gay as I had been sad the night before. On our return home, we saw from the garret windows houses in flames. I ought to be ashamed perhaps to own it, but it gave me pleasure. I considered this as a sign of the approach of the army. About five o'clock, we walked to the avenue gate. The green boughs and pikes had nearly disappeared. Crowds of women and children and a few men were flying from Wexford. Many sought refuge at our house. They said that the King's troops were encamped at the Windmill Hills, that they plundered every house and shot every man they saw. We again went to Fairfield. Mr Codd, who had commanded the Rathspick Corps, and a Mr O'Brien, nephew of Mr Corran, the priest, were there. They wore their swords, cross belts and green collars. The deep, the manly regret that Mr O'Brien seemed to feel for the overthrow of his party interested me for him. His countenance expressed despair. His arms were folded. His mind seemed abstracted from the surrounding objects. Someone observed, we shall now have the blessings of peace restored. Yes, he replied with a smile of agony and indignation. There will be peace, but we shall all be slaves. Friday, June 22nd. All the morning we listened to the shrieks, the complainings of female rebels. They almost turned my joy into sorrow. Katrina Kennedy there, reading from Elizabeth Richards' diary. The Irishman serving in the British Army has been a dominant theme of Irish Month, and it goes without saying that not all Irishmen serving in the British Army were hostile to Britain. Jacqueline Reiter introduces an account now of someone who had more reason to have antipathy to the French, making serving with the English the lesser of two evils. Hello, this is Jacqueline Reiter here, 
and I'm going to be reading from the diary of Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Walsh, Assistant Adjutant General on the staff of the ill-fated Walcheren Expedition of 1809. My selection is a bit of a cheat, I'm afraid, because Thomas Walsh was technically not Irish at all. He was born in 1777 in France. His great-grandfather had fled Kilkenny at the end of the 17th century and followed King James II into exile. Lieutenant Colonel Walsh was thus essentially a French Catholic émigré who only joined the British Army after the French Revolution had made it unhealthy to be an aristocrat. Not every member of the Walsh family followed suit. Walsh had several cousins holding high-ranking positions at Napoleon's court. Walsh's diary of the Walcheren expedition is now held at the University of Michigan. I published it in the Journal of the Society for Army Historical Research a couple of years ago. What follows is a passage dealing with the surrender of Flushing. It's one of my favourite episodes, showing Walsh's eye for military detail, as well as his complete inability to suppress his irritation at the way things were going in general, and at the sluggishness of the commander of the forces, Lord Chatham, in particular. August 18th. By seven o'clock this morning, our troops had all assembled to witness the marching out of the garrison of Flushing. Precisely at eight o'clock, agreeably to orders, the garrison began to march out. But the commander of the forces, not being a very early man, did not make his appearance until a quarter of an hour before nine. At length, for the weather was very hot and oppressive, Lord Chatham arrived and the French were again put in motion. They marched into the field and grounded their arms as they came up with great regularity. 4,450 actually laid down their arms, exclusive for which upwards of a thousand sick and wounded still remained in Flushing. Add to these thousand wounded, whom General Monet, the French commander in Walcheren, admits were sent to Cazand, and about 1,900 prisoners and deserters taken before the fall of Flushing, and you will find that 9,000 men have been lost to France since our landing in Walcheren. Only two standards were brought out by the garrison. It is therefore pretty evident that the eagles of the French regiments were concealed or otherwise disposed of. Inquiry was made of General Monet on the subject, who answered that the French troops in Flushing being only in detachments of regiments, no eagles had been entrusted to them. That, I believe, however, to be but a lame excuse. Among the corps comprising the garrison was that of the Irish Guides, actually the Irish Legion, which, however, could not boast of more than 30 or 40 subjects of Great Britain. The rest was made up of Poles and Spaniards. The men say they enlisted to save themselves from hunger in French prison, where some of them had been upwards of five years. It is interesting to see Walsh, an Irishman by ancestry if not birth, dealing with the presence of Irishmen at Walcheren. A battalion of the Irish Legion had been serving on Walcheren since 1807, as Walsh pointed out, it consisted partly of Spanish and Polish soldiers, but many of the men serving were former Irish rebels who had been prescribed after the 1798 rebellion. Walsh makes no further comment about them, which is a shame. It would have been interesting to know his feelings about men who were, after all, only following a similar path to his own ancestors, and with whom he might otherwise have fought side by side. The presence of the Irishmen in Flushing was well known, and British newspapers had been speculating about what would happen to them if they were still in Flushing when the town surrendered. In the end, the Irish Legion were considered ordinary prisoners of war, treated, as Legionnaire Miles Byrne observed in his post-war memoirs, in every respect as French officers. 
But Thomas Walsh was right about one thing. At least one eagle had been smuggled out of Flushing before the surrender. Miles Byrne again picks up the tale. General Monet, having capitulated at Flushing without any stipulation for the Irish officers, Commandant Lawless, the colonel of the battalion, thought it necessary to find an opportunity of making his escape to Antwerp, where he brought the eagle of the regiment and was received by Marshal Bernadotte with the highest marks of esteem and consideration for his brilliant conduct. So the first enemy eagle to fall into the hands of the British during the Napoleonic Wars nearly did so at the Siege of Flushing in 1809, nearly two years before Ensign Keogh and Sergeant Masterson took one at Barossa. But perhaps it's best the first eagle was not seized from the hands of Irish rebels. Jacqueline Reiter there, reading from Lieutenant Colonel Tom Walsh. Frustration with the army's procedures was not unique to the men, as the civilian camp followers could just as easily find themselves affected by the decisions of commanders. Jim Deary highlights this in his extract. The person I have chosen for my narrative of voices from Ireland is Irish woman Bridget Skiddy, the wife of Irish soldier Daniel Skiddy. As with many women who accompanied Wellington's regiments, whether they be Irish, English or Scottish, we do not know much about her background. And what we do know of her comes from the memoirs of Ensign George Bell of the 34th Foot. In his rough notes of an old soldier, Bell recounts the exploits of Biddy or Mother Skiddy, and the words of one historian, she practically leaps off the pages. In giving us such a vivid account of Biddy, Bell allows us but to glimpse the world of these women and the dangers and travails they encountered as they determined to stay with their husband soldiers at all costs and keep their families together. For there is a struggle within a struggle, a constant battle not only against the French, who at any time might take a husband and provider away, but also a struggle against the military authorities, who at best viewed them as an inconvenience and at worst actively sought to remove them from the army and the only existence they had. You may be surprised to hear that I came face to face with Biddy myself. Many years ago, the National Army Museum used wax models to depict soldiers of the British Army down through the ages. And in one display, somebody had thought it appropriate to depict a camp follower from Wellington's army in Spain. As she trudged along a muddy road with her soldier husband on her back, broken and exhausted, and a young child trailing behind, dragging its father's musket. The display was Biddy herself, forever immortalised in wax, as she carried her husband along one of the retreats in Spain. But enough of me talking, it's time now to meet Biddy herself. A multitude of soldiers' wives stuck to the army like bricks. Adverse to all military discipline, they impeded our progress at many times, particularly in the retreat. They became the subject of a general order for their own special guidance. They in advance blocking up narrow passes and checking the advance of the army with their donkeys. After repeated orders to follow in the rear of their respective corps, but our donkeys would be shot. I'd like to see the man that would shoot my donkey, said Mrs. Biddy Flynn. Fate, I'll be too early away for any of them to catch me. Will you come with me, girls? I indeed, every one of them, said. And away they all started at early dawn cracking their jokes about division orders, Wellington, commanding officers, and their next bivouac. Mrs. Skiddy leading the way on her celebrated donkey called the Queen of Spain. She was a squat little Irish woman, broad as a turtle. Drive on, girls, and we'll bait them at the end of this day at any rate, says Mother Skiddy. And tomorrow too, said Mrs. Flynn, and the day after, cried Betty Wheel, and then a chorus of laughter by the whole brigade. 
those three industrious women will be remembered by all old 34th men still alive. Alas, the provost marshal was in, in advance, a man in authority and a terror to all evildoers. In his department, the Hades Corpus Act was suspended throughout the war, and he was waiting here in the narrow turn of the road for the ladies with an advance guard, all loaded. He gave orders to fire at once on the donkeys, killing and wounding two or three for an example. It was wonderful what they endured, but in spite of all this warning, Mother Skiddy was foremost on the line of march next morning. As she said, we must risk something to be in before the men, to have a fire and a drop of tay ready for the poor craters after their load and their labour. And sure, if I went in the rear, the French, bad luck to them, would pick me up and my donkey, and then Dan would be lost entirely. She was a devoted soldier's wife, and a right good one, an excellent forager, and never failed to have something for Dan when we were all starving. Bell was to recount many other stories of Biddy throughout their time in Spain. He was to finally conclude in Bordeaux when they'd crossed over into France and his final meeting with Biddy. Well, Mrs. Skiddy, you are a wonderful little woman. You saved a good soldier for yourself and the service. All the regiments knows how well you acted on the march, where we lost so many of our gallant comrades. You've always been a most useful person, well respected, and I wish you safe home to the Green Isle and a safe meeting with your friends. I bid this wonderful structure of humanity a friendly farewell after squaring a long account with her for about a year's washing and darning. She was reluctant to take anything, saying, Oh, sir, sure you always belong to me own company, and you're welcome to have a bit of washing. I hope Dan got the shilling, a shilling a day pension for life, but the government of the day that wasted with unsparing hand England's golden millions passed off with a sixpenny pension the old soldier, bearing many scars, and very often with sixpence or ninepence a day, for 9, 12, 18, or 24 months, when it ceased, and he became a pauper. Jim Deary there remembering Bridget Skiddy, as recollected by George Bell. The unpopularity of the Provost was something of a running theme across the British Army, as Peter Malloy now highlights in this next extract that sees us return to the recollections of Harry Ross Lewin. Captain Harry Ross Lewin, County Clare. 32nd foot, France, 1814. On entering France, very strict orders had been issued to prevent plunder of any kind. A provost marshal was appointed to every division, whose duty it was to ride around the bivouacs, to take up all stragglers found plundering, and to punish them on the spot, should he think fit. His guard of cavalry were distinguished by white scarves worn around the arm. The vigilance of the Provost Marshal had, of course, an excellent effect. But it isn't in the power of man totally to put a stop to plundering in any army while stationed during war in a foreign country. One day, as Lord Wellington and some of his staff were riding down a lane, somewhere in the vicinity of Orthez, they suddenly saw a soldier running up with a hive of honey under his arm. His Lordship immediately directed one of his staff to speak to him. But the man, who belonged to the 88th, no sooner perceived this unlucky encounter than he assumed an air of the greatest simplicity and before the officer had time to open his lips looked up in his face and cried out in the true accent of a ranger hurry hurry or they're all gone from his this completely disarmed lord wellington who could not suppress a smile and rode off without taking further notice of the ready-witted irishman's transgression 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Peter Malloy there, reading from the recollections of Harry Ross Lewin. We stay with the theme of punishment in this next reading from Irishman and rifleman Edward Costello. One of the 95th's most famous veterans, Costello here recalls the emotional scene in which regimental favourite Thomas Plunkett was flogged. Here's Eamon Honan to tell us more. One deplorable instance of insubordination arising from this vice drink, I well remember. It took place at Campo Maior after the Battle of Talavera. Tom had been promoted to the rank of sergeant and was in the Honourable Captain Stewart's company. One morning when the company was on private parade, Tom appeared quite tipsy and in giving the words of command for inspection, previous to the arrival of the officers, he set the men laughing. The pay sergeant, his superior, immediately ordered him to desist. Tom refused and while an altercation was going on, Captain Stewart came up, who, perceiving the state he was in, put him under arrest and ordered him to be confined to his quarters. Here he was no sooner left alone than conceiving that a great indignity had been placed upon him. Thoughts of vengeance immediately suggested themselves to his mind. Under the influence of intoxication, that man who, when sober, was noted for his good humour and humanity, now conceived the diabolical intention of shooting his captain. He immediately barricaded the door of the room and then set about loading some ten or twelve rifles belonging to the men then on fatigue duty. Taking up one of these and cocking it, he placed himself at an open window for the avowed purpose, as he stated to several of the men, of shooting Captain Stewart as he passed. Fortunately, the captain got notice of the danger of going near the house, while several of the men, by coaxing and force, alternatively, uh, endeavoured without effort to get into the room Tom had barred. At length, the unfortunate Plunkett was induced to relent on the appearance of a lieutenant of the company named Johnston, who was a great favourite with the men, among whom he was known by a very familiar nickname. The door was opened and Tom made prisoner. Although Tom was a general favourite and his conduct had resulted from the madness of intoxication, his insubordination was too glaring to stand a chance of being passed over. He was brought to a regimental court-martial, found guilty and sentenced to be reduced to the ranks, and to receive 300 lashes. Poor Plunkett, when he recovered his reason after the commission of his crime, had experienced and expressed the most unfeigned contrition that when the sentence became known there was a general sorrow felt for him throughout the regiment, particularly on account of the corporal punishment. In this feeling, I believe, the officers participated almost as much as the men. At length, 
the time arrived when the bravest soldier of our battalion was to suffer the penalty of his crime in the presence of those very men before whom he'd been held up as a pattern but some few short months before. The square was formed for punishment. There was a tree in the centre to which the culprit was to be tied and close to which he stood with folded arms and downcast eyes in front of his guard. There was a solemn stillness on that parade that was remarkable. A pensiveness on the features of both officers and men, deeper than usual, as though the honour of the profession was to suffer in the person of the prisoner. <sighs> Flogging is at all times a disgusting subject of contemplation. In the present circumstance it seemed doubly so, now that a gallant, and until a few days, an honoured and respected man was to suffer. The sentence of the court-martial was read by the adjutant in a loud voice. Poor Tom, who had had the commiseration of the whole regiment, looked pale. "'Buglers, do your duty!' exclaimed Colonel Beckwith, in a voice husky with emotion. "'I thought the men seemed to hesitate in their business in stripping and binding the prisoner to the tree. This, however, was soon accomplished, Tom only once attempting to catch the eye of his colonel with an imploring glance, while he exclaimed in broken accents, "'Colonel, you wouldn't. You won't, will you? You won't. You cannot mean to flog me.' Although Beckwith was affected by the plea, he ordered the buglers to start. The first lash was light, so he was ordered to do his duty fairly by Beckwith. The second bugler was much harsher. Tom only received thirty-five lashes. "'You see, sir, now how easy it is to commit a blackguard's crime, but how difficult it is to take his punishment.' Eamon Honan there, reading from the recollections of Rifleman Edward Costello. The final few extracts all relate to fighting and its immediate aftermath, and in this next section, Michael Peterson reads a letter from Frederick Johnston, an Irish cavalry officer, to his mother, describing his frustration at having missed Waterloo and the ravages of war that had been inflicted on the French countryside by a vengeful Prussian army during their march on Paris. From the Diary of Frederick Johnston, written 4 July 1815, at a pillaged house, Rossi, in France, near Paris. My dear mother, I arrived at the regiment the day before yesterday, having come from Brussels in seven days with a detachment of different regiments and six officers. I was senior, so commanded, got my men and horses into good villages every night, by going a little out of the main road, although it required some management, as you cannot conceive a country so completely pillaged. Houses actually turned inside out, everything broke, the roads strewed with the feathers of chickens. All along the main roads, entire villages deserted, not a soul to be found. In short, the scene was really quite distressing. The weather was fine, dreadfully hot, and the dust most overcoming whenever we came up with artillery, etc., on the main roads. I kept on the crossroads as much as possible and brought my detachment consisting of 170 horses and above 100 men quite well, though we came at the rate of near 10 leagues a day. In short, the army advanced very rapidly, but we came in half the time. The day I got up to the regiment, which was at Chenevier, Les Louvres, we marched here about four miles. There was an idea that we were to have a fight the next morning, but it did not take place. Reports are now Pacific. 
but there are a dozen different reports every day. You know more than we do. My health is quite reestablished, and I am now as strong as ever. But I fear I shall not have a fight. However, it is my misfortune, not my fault. We are half starved. The Prussians have everywhere committed such excesses that the people have concealed themselves and all their effects. If they find wheat, there is nobody to thresh, no millers to grind it. In short, we are badly off, but all are very gay and make the best of everything. I went foraging twice and have got more than any of them. In fact, the others have got nothing. I yesterday got three bottles of brandy and 15 pounds of butter, which was a monstrous prize. My two letters from Brussels were both written in moments when I was so much agitated that I could not give details. I therefore now attempt. On the 16th, about three in the morning, our regiment received the order to march, which they did at seven, not thinking the least that the campaign had actually begun. I then mounted my horse for the first time for five weeks. You may conceive I was not strong. I was then ordered to take charge of the baggage till the whole of it came up. Then I was to remain with it from that time till 10 o'clock on Saturday night, the 17th. I marched incessantly without anything to eat but some coffee and a little bread and butter in the middle of the night of the 16th, which night was the most horrible rain I ever saw, as was that of the 17th. On the 17th, I reached Brussels where I got a bed in a wretched alehouse with gratitude and got my horse into a shed. On Sunday, I was at Brussels during the whole of the dance of the French. Being in the town, for the fears took such an effect on the inhabitants that even in the house where I was, they pointed out people in the streets whom they declared to be French soldiers. I was agitated, but not with fear, and awaited with a sort of desperate calmness the entrance of the French. I had three good horses in the stable. My servant even saddled my best, and together with the innkeeper and his family begged of me to run away, but I refused. I had missed being in the action where my old family regiment had immortalized itself, and life was indifferent to me. Indeed, I half wished the French to have entered and to have murdered me, which I dare say they would have done. Nothing but threats and the most positive orders prevented my joining the regiment on the 19th though so weak at that time as not to be able to walk a hundred yards without the sweat dropping from me. In that situation, I could not write, and it was not till I obtained a sort of forced consent to go up to the army that my spirits would allow me to write. I then wrote, but do not recollect the date. I was in high spirits and neglected the public service by making much longer marches than I ought to have done, though I must say, the anxiety of officers and men of the detachment fully kept pace with mine. On our arrival at the brigade, we had still some hopes as they had been saddled all the night before, and we expected a fight. It is lucky perhaps for me that it did not take place as I own I forgot my promise to you and came up in rather a desperate sort of humor. My spirits are however low at present as people seem to think it is all over. However, as all my brother officers say, it is not my fault, but my misfortune. And though I say it that ought not, I believe my character stands as high in the regiment as if I had been in the charge that destroyed Bonaparte's Imperial Guard Cuirassier, his finest troops. I'm getting cheerful, 
And whatever the invidious world may say or think of me, the Inniskillings are not ashamed of me. However, this subject strains my nerves, and I will drop it. Of Rufo, great fears are entertained, as many prisoners were killed by all accounts, some by Prussians who mistook them for French. Still, I flatter myself there is hope. My horses, boy and gardener, are well. Dahl was lost, but is in the possession of a German officer, a friend of mine, who will send her to me the first opportunity. All our wounded officers are doing well. One, Hassard, has come up. Our brigade has never seen a Frenchman since the 18th, so I have the comfort of thinking that except the great battle, which was unavoidable, I have lost but nothing. I had a letter from John today and one from you of the 27th. Some of your former ones are gone back to Brussels as I was not expected up so soon. There is a report that we are to march into Paris on Thursday, but we know nothing certain. For the present, adieu. Believe me, dear mother, your affectionate son, Frederick Johnston. Michael Peterson reading from the letters of Frederick Johnston there. Of course, others had fought at Waterloo. For our next extract, Rebecca Heaton reads a passage chosen by Carol Dixon-Smith, written by Lieutenant Colonel Standish O'Grady. O'Grady was a lieutenant in the 7th Hussars at Waterloo, hailing from Cahir Gwillamore in Limerick. He later became the 2nd Viscount Gwillamore. Early in the morning of the 17th, the army was drawn up to show a front and soon afterwards the infantry began to move to the rear. When Major Hodge, who was commander of the right squadron, to which I belonged, returned, he told me that the Prussians had been beaten and obliged to fall back, and that we must make a similar movement to prevent the two armies from being disunited, that our brigade was to retire by regiments from the left, and that the 7th had the post of honour, the main road to cover and protect, that Sir William Dornberg was to take charge of the skirmishes of the brigade, and that our squadron was to skirmish. There was at this time no appearance on the part of the enemy of an advance, and we were to hold our ground until driven from it. We threw out the right troop to skirmish, and Major Hodge went with them. I held the high road with the left troop, and had from time to time to send them assistance, and frequently to advance to enable them to hold their ground, as their movements were difficult through ploughed fields so soft that the horses were sunk up to their knees always, and sometimes to their girths. Whilst I was so employed, Sir William Dornberg joined me. Thus we continued to dispute every inch of the ground until we came within a short distance of the town of Genappe. Here, Sir William Dornberg told me that he must leave me, that it was of the utmost importance to face the enemy boldly at this spot, as the bridge in the town was so narrow that we must pass it in file, that I should endeavour, if possible, to obtain time for the skirmishes to come in, but that I was not to compromise my troop too much. When he bid me farewell, he shook my hand, and I saw plainly he never expected to see me again. I then called in the skirmishers that advanced at a trot up the road. I continued advancing and retiring alternately, until I saw all my right troops safe on the road in my rear, and then I began to retire at a walk, occasionally halting and fronting until I turned the corner of the town. I then filed the men from the left and passed through the town at a gallop, no enemy in sight. When I arrived at the opposite entrance of the town, I found the 7th drawn up on the road in a column of divisions, and having reformed our squadron, we took our place between those already formed and the town. 
Here I met Sir William Dornberg, who appeared surprised to see me, and asked me how we had effected our retreat, and if we had saved any of the skirmishers. And when I told him we had not lost a man or a horse, he exclaimed, Then Bonaparte is not with them. If he were, not a man of you could have escaped. Here we remained drawn up about twenty minutes before any of the enemy appeared, and then only a few stragglers, some of whom rode into us, and were found to be quite drunk. As well as I can guess, the cavalry column by which we were pursued, and which moved slowly but shouting loudly along the high road, were about fourteen squadrons, and this column now showed its head, which consisted of a troop of lancers, all very young men, mounted on very small horses, and commanded by a fine-looking and a very brave man. For about fifteen minutes they remained in the jaws of the town, their flanks being protected by the houses, and the street not being straight, and those in the rear not knowing that the front were halted, they soon became so jammed that they could not go about. In this state of affairs, Lord Anglesey gave us orders to charge them, which we immediately did. Of course our charge could make no impression, but we continued cutting at them, and we did not give ground, nor did they move. Their commanding officer was cut down, and so was ours, Major Hodge, and this state of things lasted some minutes, when they brought down some light artillery, which struck the rear of the right squadron and knocked over some men and horses, impeding the road in our rear. We then received orders to go about from Lord Anglesey, who was up with us, but not on the road during all this time. The lancers then advanced upon us, and in the melee which ensued, they lost quite as many as we did, and when at last we were able to disengage ourselves, they did not attempt to pursue us. We retired and formed in the field by the roadside, I then got the remnant of the right squadron and moved them down towards the town of Genappe to look after any of our wounded, whom it might be in our power to save. When I saw the ground upon which we had charged it was strewed with men and horses, but I saw very few fighting men of the enemy. The enemy did not again attempt to molest us, and we reached our position without further interruption, except some picket affairs in taking up our respective lines in one of which Captain Hayliger of the 7th made a very brilliant charge with his troop, and when the Duke of Wellington sent to stop him, he also desired to know his name. I thought at the time, and I still think, that when we charged the enemy at Genappe, their entire column was in the town, and that being the case, it is clear that as soon as they found the head of their column engaged, they commenced clearing their rear out of the town. If this be the case, it is obvious that the success or failure of the 7th in their charge was simply a matter of time. A little delay, and they would not have had to charge, but to pursue. This, as well as I recollect, was Sir William Dornberg's opinion at the time, when he objected to charging before their flanks were open to us. I satisfy myself that I have given you, as well as I can now recollect them, all the facts as they came before me. A few minutes before we charged, one of the heaviest showers of rain I can remember fell, which, as it wet everybody and everything, rendered firearms useless, and though the French fired a few pistol shots, I don't think they did any damage. Our engagement was therefore one of sabre and lance. I have only to add that we lost our commanding officer. Major Hodge killed, and Captain Elphinston, who commanded the right troop, wounded and taken. Our adjutant was killed also, but not in the charge. But as we could never find either Major Hodge or Adjutant Mayor, I can only say they were killed in fighting because I hope it. In answer to a flag of truce that evening, they said they had taken a Major, a Captain, an Adjutant and an ADC. 
which latter was Captain Krockenberg, ADC to Sir William Dornberg. You will perceive that the right squadron under Major Hodge was the only one of the regiment engaged, and that it was Captain Elphinstone's troop which had been engaged skirmishing throughout the day, that charged afterwards at Genappe. Believe, etc. Standish O'Grady. Rebecca Heaton, reading on behalf of Carol Dixon Smith there, from the recollections of Standish O'Grady. One of the most famous episodes of the Battle of Waterloo was the death of William Ponsonby, immortalised in the 1970 film Waterloo. Gavin Hughes tells us more now about the man and one of his last letters, reminding us of the emotional toll of war. Hello, I'm Dr Gavin Hughes and I'm currently director of the Irish Conflict Archaeology Network at the Centre for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at Trinity College Dublin. I've chosen Major General Sir William Ponsonby as my Irish voice. Like many, as a boy, I was drawn to the film Waterloo, and I found the movie version of Ponsonby's death very affecting. That version, however, is nothing compared to the detailed and movingly forensic examination of his final hours provided in the excellent and much-recommended book by John Morwood, Waterloo General. Indeed, I will shortly read out an extract from Sir William's last letter to his mother, now held amongst the Halifax papers of the Borthwick Institute of Archives, University of York, and reproduced within that book. Yet Sir William is not defined by the way that he died. That he did so at Waterloo, arguably at the height of his powers, only reaffirms to me the manner of his life. William came from a second echelon of the influential Anglo-Irish Ponsonby family, the Earls of Bessborough, and whilst they did not control this title or have access to their wealth and estates, the junior Ponsonbys of Immokilly were influential in their own right, owning land in Cork, Kildare and Londonderry. Indeed, William inherited the entire Londonderry estates upon his father's death in 1806. By 1815, William found himself with a knighthood and the rank of Major General, and a reputation as a skilful and gifted cavalry commander. Yet his demeanour appears to have been consistently pleasant and most self-effacing. In the Hundred Days campaign, the Duke of Wellington appointed him to command the 2nd Heavy Cavalry Brigade, known as the Union Brigade because it contained the 1st Royal Regiment of Dragoons, 2nd Royal North British Dragoons, known as the Scots Greys, and the 6th Inniskilling Dragoons. At Waterloo, Sir William's brigade was committed to the battle around 2.25pm on the 18th of June, and at approximately 2.45 in just over 20 minutes, Sir William's brigade had broken five French infantry brigades and perhaps caused as many as 5,000 French casualties killed, wounded or taken prisoner. In practice, the Union Brigade charge had snuffed out the main French assault. However, not long afterwards, Sir William too lay dead on the field at Waterloo. Seven days earlier, Sir William wrote what was to be his last letter to his mother. It is a fascinating insight into the mind of a successful Anglo-Irish commander, bristling with references to his family's financial troubles and expressions of his feelings for his family, his wife Georgiana and his daughters, concern over growing political developments at home and the upcoming battle against Napoleon. My dearest mother, I have to thank you for your kind and comfortable letter, which was a great pleasure to me. I am always delighted to hear you like and approve of our little girls, and do hope they grow up what we would wish. Little Lou, in a letter which I received from her yesterday, gave me an account of the visit of Grandmama and Aunt Mary. There seems to be in England a decided feeling for war, a perfect confidence as to the successful result. 
How far this confidence is well founded, a few months will show. Bonaparte will certainly have need of all his extraordinary abilities to resist the immense force about to attack him, and I should think it impossible for him to do so unless he is backed by the cordial and near general support of the population of France. Upon this point it is impossible to obtain any information to be depended upon. The Duke of Wellington, however, considers himself very strong and is very confident. My brother George has written me of Lord Fitzwilliam's most kind and handsome proceedings respecting the arrears. I quite agree with you that he is a person quite by himself. I have not heard what or whether any arrangement has since been made respecting the principle of annuities. It was very good of you to give me so comfortable an account of Georgiana. I am glad she has gone to town now and then, and to two or three parties. Her life in Hampstead must be very solitary and dull, and stands much need of relief. We are told here that the insurrection in La Vendée is very extensive and formidable, and I believe it is so, but there is too much reason to apprehend that Bonaparte will be able to crush it before the grand attack commences. It is understood here that he is at Marburg yesterday, and has been at Valenciennes. His game would appear to be, and it's certainly his manner, to strike a blow here before the Austrians and Russians come into play, and I am surprised at his not having already attempted it. However, we understand that the roads communicating with Belgium have been completely broken up, and every possible obstacle contrived which, of course, must place difficulties in the way of attack on his part, in the same proportions as of our advance, so that one must suppose that it is not his intention to make an attack. I see that the Catholics have lost ground considerably, not only in the number, but also in the zeal and tone of their suppositions. Unless they alter very much their mode of proceeding, they never can have any chance of obtaining a decision in their favour. I enclose a little note for Frederick. Give my love to Mary and her girls, Charles, etc., and believe me, my dearest mother, ever your affectionate W.P. A short time after Sir William's death, Corporal Dixon of the Scots Greys noted that he saw, in his words, a spectacle I will never forget. There lay brave old Ponsonby, the general of our Union Brigade, beside his little bay, both dead. His long fur-lined cloak had blown aside, and at his hand I noticed a miniature of a lady and his watch. Beyond him are Brigade Major Reynolds of the Greys. Sir William's body was officially recovered the next day by Colonel Best. By this time it had been robbed of pretty much everything, and Colonel Best later described that he had, quote, found Major General William Ponsonby, who was struck through the chest and body. He was stripped, except for his shirt, which was entirely soaked in blood. Gavin Hughes there, reading from the letters of William Ponsonby. Another famous incident of Waterloo involved the 27th Inniskilling's determination to stand and die in square, plugging a vital gap in Wellington's line. Due to the casualty rate within that unit, accounts of this episode are rare, but Major Mills of the 40th Regiment described the Irishman's plight and determination and sacrifice in the following terms. A very tremendous cannonade was commenced by the French on our lines and uninterruptedly continued. We lay down in square to escape as far as possible its destructive effects. Half of the Inner's killings were mowed down in a similar position without having power or opportunity to return a shot. At one time the officer commanding the 27th, when there was a temporary cessation from artillery fire, rode up to our Major and announced the fact of having barely an officer left to command each company. Major Brown offered to lend him some of the 40th. This, however, 
was imperatively declined. The sergeants of the regiment, he said, liked to command the companies, and he would be loath to deprive them of the honour. Whenever there was an intermission in this fire, it was to find ourselves surrounded and beset by hordes of horsemen, who were slashing and cutting at our kneeling ranks. The foul firing of our standing ranks, being concentrated and constant, was very effectual against their attacks, and both horse and rider were to be constantly discerned, rolling over onto the plain, and the remainder flying back in disorder to their own lines. And finally today, it will come as no surprise to listeners, given the complexity of Irish-English relations during this period, that some Irishmen served in the French army. Marcus Cribb therefore closes out Voices from Ireland with an account from William Grattan of Irishmen fighting Irishmen as the British and French armies clashed at the Battle of Bissarco. Marcus Cribb, reading from Grattan's Adventures with the Connaught Rangers by Ensign William Grattan of the 88th Regiment, published in 1847. It's a really enjoyable peninsula memoir um, from a young officer who was in the thick of the fighting throughout. Uh, as part of the fighting 3rd Division at Bucasso, the 88th Connaught Rangers come up against the Irish Legion of Napoleon's forces uh, with Irish on Irish fighting, which Grattan brilliantly describes. The actions here described um, give a rolling fight, showing the death, destruction and fear all around them and the swirling maelstrom of the battle, as well as praise afterwards, in a way that even Bernard Cornwell would be jealous of. That's why I've chosen it, and I'll read directly from here to give the listeners an understanding of that battle in the Peninsular War. The fog cleared away, and a bright sun enabled us to see what was passing before us. A vast crowd of trialeurs were pressing onwards with great ardour, and their fire, as well as their numbers, was so superior to that of our advance that some men of the Brigade of Lightburn, as well as also a few of the 88th Regiment, were killed while standing in line. A colour sergeant named McNamara was shot through the head, close beside myself, and Ensign Oregon. Colonel King, commanding the 5th Regiment, which was one of those belonging to Lightburn's brigade, oppressed by a desultory fire, he was unable to reply without disturbing the formation of his battalion, brought his regiment a little out of its range, whilst Colonel Alexander Wallace, of the 88th, took a file of men from each company of his regiment and placed them under the command of Captain George Burry and Lieutenant William Mackey, ordered them to advance to the aid of our people, who were overmatched and roughly handled at the moment. Our artillery still continued to discharge showers of grape and canister at half range, but the French light troops... Fighting at open distance, he did it not, and continued to multiply in great force. Nevertheless, in place of coming up direct in front of the 88th, they edged off to their left, out of sight of that corps, and had far away from Lightburn's brigade, and the nature of the ground, they could be neither seen nor the exact object to find, as they went to their left, our advance inclined to the right, making a corresponding movement. But though nothing certain could be known, as we were soon lost to both parties, the roll of musketry never ceased, and many of Burry's and Mackey's men returned wounded. Those two officers greatly distinguished themselves, and the Burry, though badly wounded, refused to quit the field. A soldier of Burry's company, of the name of Pollard, was shot through the shoulder, but seeing his captain, though wounded, 
continued at the head of his men, he threw his knapsack and fought beside his officer. But this brave fellow's career of glory was short. A bullet penetrated the plate of his cup, passed through his brain, and he fell dead at Bury's feet. These were the sort of materials of the 88th were formed of, and they were the sort of men that, though were unnoticed by their general, Lord Wellington was no longer to be seen, and Wallace and his regiment, standing alone without orders, had to act for themselves. The colonel sent the captain of his grenadiers, a man called Dunn, to his right, where the rocks were the highest, to ascertain how matters stood, for he did not wish, at his own peril, to quit the ground he had been ordered to occupy without some of the reason for doing so. All this time, the brigade of Lightburn, as also the 88th, was standard at ordered arms. In a few moments, Dunn returned, almost breathless. He said the rocks were filling fast with Frenchmen, that heavy column was coming up over the hill beyond the rocks, and that four companies of the 45th were about to be attacked. Wallace asked if he thought half the 88 would be able to do the business. You will want every man, was the reply. Wallace was a steady, but with a cheerful countenance. He turned to his men, and looking them full in the face, said, Now, Connaught Rangers, mind what you are going to do. Pay attention to what I have often told you, and when I bring you face to face with those French rascals, drive them down the hill. Don't give the false touch, Don't, but push home to the muzzle. I have nothing more to say, and if I had, it would be of no use. For a minute or two, there will be such an infernal noise about your ears, you won't be able to hear yourselves. This address went home to the hearts of us all, but there was no cheering. A steady, determined calm had taken place over any lighter feeling, and it seemed as if the men made up their minds to go about their works unruffled and not too much excited. Wallace then threw the battalion into column, right in front, and moved on our side of the rocky point at a quick pace. On reaching the rocks, he soon found it manifest that Dunn's report was not exaggerated, and a number of Frenchmen were in possession of this cluster. And so soon as we were approached within range, we were made to appreciate the efforts of their fire, for our column was raked from front to rear. The moment was critical, but Wallace, without being at least taken aback, filed out the grenadiers and the 1st Battalion Company, commanded by Dunn and Dancy, and ordered them to storm the rocks, whilst he took the 5th Battalion Company, commanded by Captain Oates, also at the column, and ordered the attack onto the rocks opposite to the side that had been assailed by Dunn and Dancy. This done, Wallace placed himself at the head of the remainder of the 88th and pressed them on to meet the French column. At this moment, the four companies of the 45th, commanded by Major Gwyn, a little to the left of the 88th and in front of the regiment, commenced their fire. But in no way it arrested the advance of the French column, as it, as with many other, ordered with regularity, mounted the hill, which at this point is rather flat. But here, again, another awkward circumstance occurred. A battalion of the 8 Portuguese infantry, under Colonel Douglas, posted on a rising ground to our right and a little to our rear, in place of advancing with us, opened at a distant and ill-directed fire, and one which would exactly cross the path of the 88th, as that corps was moving onward to meet the French column, which consisted of three splendid regiments, the 2nd Light Infantry, the 36th and the 70th of the line. Wallace 
Seeing the loss and confusion that would infallibly ensue, sent Lieutenant John Fitzpatrick, an officer of tried gallantry, with orders to point out to the regiment the error of which it had fallen. But Fitzpatrick only had the time to take off his hat and call Vamos Comrades when he received two bullets, one from the Portuguese, which passed through his back, and the other in his left leg from the French, which broke the bone and caused a severe fracture. Yet this regiment continued to fire away, regardless of the consequences, and a battalion of militia, which was immediately to the rear of the 8th Portuguese, took to their heels at the first moment of the volley was discharged by their own countrymen. Wallace threw himself from his horse, placing himself at the head of the 45th and 88th, with Gwyn of the 45th on one side of him, and Captain Seaton of the 88th on the other, ran forward at charging pace into the midst of a terrible flame in his front. All was now confusion and uproar, smoke, fire and bullets, officers and soldiers, French drummers and French drums knocked down in every direction. British, French and Portuguese mixed together, while in the midst of it all was to be seen Wallace, fighting like an ancestor of his old, at the head of his devoted followers and calling out to his soldiers to press forward. Never was more defeat more complete, and it was a proud moment for Wallace and Gwyn when they saw that their gallant comrades breaking down and tramping under their feet this splendid division composed of some of the best troops in the world could boast of. The leading regiment, the 86th, one of Napoleon's favourite battalions, was nearly destroyed. Upwards of 200 soldiers and their old colonel, covered with orders, lay dead in a small space. And on that face of the hill was strewn with dead and wounded, which showed evident marks of the rapid execution done at this point. For Wallace never slackened his fire while a Frenchman was within his reach. He followed them down the edge of the hill and he formed his men in line, waiting for any orders he might receive or for any fresh body that might attack him. Our gallant companions of the 45th had an equal share in the glory of this short but murderous fight. They suffered severely and the 88th lost nine officers and 135 men. The 8th Portuguese also suffered but in a less degree than any of the other two regiments, because the advance was not so rapid. But that regiment never gave way, nor was it ever broken. Indeed, there was nothing to break it, for the French were all in front of the 45th and 88th, and if they had broken the Portuguese, they must have first broken the two British regiments, which is well known they did not. The regiment of militia in their rear ran away most manfully, and if they were not able to continue for any length of time, the pace which they commenced their flight, they might, I should say, have nearly reached Coimbra before all the matters had been finally settled between us and the French. Two of their officers stood for them and reported to themselves in person to Wallace on the field of battle, so there could be no mistake about them, no more than there was about the rest of the regiment. Meanwhile, Captains Dunn, Dancy and Oates were in a severe struggle with the French troops that occupied the rocks. Dunn's sergeant, named Brazil, killed a Frenchman by the push of his halberd, who had nearly overpowered his captain. Dancy was slightly wounded in four places, but it was said at the time that he killed three Frenchmen, for he used a firelock. Oates suffered less than the other men opposed him, who were chiefly composed of those from Dunn and Dancy. Dunn's company of grenadiers, which at the onset counted about 60, lost either two or th and 33, and Dancy at Oates suffered companies also, but not to the same amount. The French troops that defended these rocks composed the 4th Regiment and the Irish Brigade. 
Several of the latter were left wounded on the rocks, but we could not discover one Irishman amongst them. Lord Wellington, surrounded by his staff and some general officers, was a close observer to this attack and was standing on a rising ground in the rear of the 88th Regiment, and so close to that corps that Colonel Napier of the 50th, who was on leave of absence, was wounded in the face by a musket shot quite close to Lord Wellington. His lordship passed the warmest compliments to the troops engaged, and noticed the conduct of Captain Dancy in his dispatch. It has been said, and I truly believe, that Marshal Beresford, who was Colonel of the 88th, expressed some uneasiness when he saw his regiment about to plunge into this unequal contrast. But when they were mixed with Rayner's men, pushing them down the hill, Lord Wellington tapped him on the shoulder and said, Well, Beresford, look at them now. Later, the nearest officer of rank to Wallace was Lord Wellington, who saw all that was passing and never interfered pro or con, which is tolerably strong proof that his lordship thought no alteration for the better could be made, and Wallace had scarcely reformed his line a little in the front and below the contested ground, when Lord Wellington, accompanied by Marshal Beresford and a number of other officers, galloped up and, passing round to the left of our line, rode up to Wallace. Seizing him warmly by the hand, said, Wallace, I have never witnessed a more gallant charge by that just made now of your regiments. Wallace took off his hat, but his heart was too full to speak. It was a proud moment for him. His fondest hopes had been realised, and the trouble he had taken to bring the 88th the splendid state of perfection which that corps was had been repaid in the space of a few minutes by his gallant soldiers, many of whom shed tears of joy. Marshal Beresford addressed several of the soldiers by name who had served under him when he commanded the regiment, and Picton, who at this time came up, expressed his satisfaction. Lord Wellington then took his lead of us, and Beresford, shaking the officers by the hand, rode away with his lordship, accompanied by the officers around him. We were once more left to our shelves. The arms piled, and the wounded of all nations collected and carried to the rear. In a short time, the dead were left without such a stitch of clothes to cover their bodies. All firing had ceased, except a few shots down the hill on our right, and shortly after, the pickets were placed in front. A double allowance of spirits was served out to Wallace's men that evening. That is the account of Ensign William Grattan of the 88th Connaught Rangers at the Battle of Bucasso, facing a strong French column advancing up the slopes of that famed ridge and then also driving off the men of Napoleon's Irish Legion. So for Irish Month I have chosen an Irish account where the unusual scenario of Irish troops fight Irish troops in the fields of Portugal. Marcus Cribb reading from William Grattan. That brings us to the end of this Voices from Ireland episode and also to an end of Irish Month. A particular thanks to my guests over the last five weeks, Katrina Kennedy, Jim Deary, Marcus Beresford and Andy Dorman, and those who contributed to this Voices special, Katrina, Jim, Marcus and Andy, but also Jacqueline Reiter, Peter Malloy, Eamon Honan, Michael Peterson, Carol Dixon-Smith, Rebecca Heaton, Gavin Hughes, and Marcus Cribb. If you've been inspired by this episode to learn more about those featured and buy their memoirs, then I have good news for you. You can secure a massive discount on titles whilst also supporting this podcast at no cost to yourself when you buy at Naval and Military Press. Many of their titles have up to 80% off the RRP, so you're guaranteed a deal, and if you click the link in the description, you'll be able to shop as normal, 
pay the same great prices, but the Napoleonicist will get 10% of what you spend. You win, the podcast wins, and everybody's happy. A big thank you as ever to my patrons whose support helps to cover the production costs of this podcast. If you'd like to join them, get an exclusive 10% off books at Pen and Sword and contribute to the aim of taking the Napoleonicist weekly, you can find out more at patreon.com forward slash the Napoleonicist. A particularly big thanks to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, an anonymous Canadian, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Jamie Kingston, Roy Muir, James Bevan, Lucy Tatner, and Jim Deary. As ever, you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory, and the conversation continues in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. Join me next time when I'll be speaking to Professor Emma Clary about using poetry from the period to understand popular perceptions and resistance to the war during this period. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.